0: Today we're speaking with Carter Luke. Luke, a former elementary school teacher, has been involved in the animal protection field since 1977, working for humane organizations in Wisconsin and Massachusetts. He's currently the president and CEO of the Massachusetts SPCA at ANGEL, as well as a board member of the World Animal Protection, an international organization where he's on the executive committee, finance committee, and chair of the Nominating Governance Committee and treasurer for World Animal Protection USA. Luke is also on the board of the American Fondoc Veterinary Hospital in Fez, Morocco, and is the vice president and chair of the Fondoc's audit committee. Prior to becoming president and CEO, Luke was the executive vice president of the Animal Protection Division. As president and CEO, he continues. To oversee the activities of Angel Animal Medical Center, the MSPCA's statewide law enforcement department, as well as the adoption centers and advocacy programs. Luke was a founding board member of the National Council on Pet Population Study and Policy, the Massachusetts Animal Coalition, and was a member of the Hoarding of Animals Research Consortium. He also served as a governor appointed public member on the Massachusetts Property Insurance Underwriters Association. For decades, he's been extensively involved. In research in such areas as companion animal population dynamics, free-roaming cats, cruelty and violence towards animals, dangerous dogs, and animal hoarding. Luke, I'd like to welcome you to the show.
1: It's nice to be here, Stacey. Thanks for calling.
0: So I'm just thrilled and privileged and honored to have you on the show. We've known each other for years, but I just thought if you could uh, share with our listeners, you know, how did you get the animal welfare uh, bug, so to speak?
1: Well, like a lot of things, I, I, I guess I have to start by blaming my mother. Um, <laughs> my mother, was a, she was a really a person who cared a lot about the world and a lot about animals. She was a cat and dog person. So I, I grew up with a mother who cared, and uh, that certainly taught me some lessons. In terms of the, if you will, the animal welfare bug... As you mentioned, I was actually an elementary school teacher, and in the community, it was a small town in western Wisconsin, and in the community where I lived, there was a brand new group of people, volunteers, getting together who decided that it would be great to have an animal shelter in town, and someone who was involved in starting that contacted me one day in 1977 and said, hey, you know a lot about animals, you live on a farm, which I did at the time, we're looking for someone who could help us run a new animal shelter. So it was a friend, I was a member of the volunteer group that got it started, so it sounded like it might be a really interesting thing. And so I guess I answered that call by saying, wow, yeah, let's talk about it. And that's how it started, just with a small group. And then I moved. I was there for a few years and learned a lot about... The relationship between people and animals, learned a lot about the struggle that animals go through in communities and ended up working after a few years in that one community in uh, Madison. I ran the animal shelter in Madison until 1985, at which time the MSPCA contacted me and wondered if I might be interested in moving to New England. And so that's how it started.
0: Well, I find it so fascinating how we get into our careers. It it always just seems somewhat like a random path, but always a very good path because we just feel so comfortable here, like we belong here, but yet yeah. it's just sort of sometimes a fluke.
1: It is. Sometimes the paths just take us in certain directions, although, and we kidded about this, I really think that parents and family have a lot to do with how we learn to think about others and that relates to people as well as animals. So again, blame the mother, blame the father is actually a very positive thing.
0: (laughs) Very good. Very good. And uh, you and I, we've had long conversations about community cats and cat population and shelters and, and that kind of thing. I know you've had quite a bit of passion around that topic. When did it really come to your mind that we needed to do something different with regards to the cat populations in our shelters?
1: Well that's a really a great question uh, Stacy and I I think that it was certainly the case that when i first started to work in an animal shelter i really got a better understanding of the difficult times that cats and dogs and were having in communities i i always thought everything was great i had uh, dogs and cats and horses for most of my life and they were always well cared for and i thought everyone was basically felt the same way about animals that i did i was a little naive and that it really was starting to work in an animal shelter where I started to see what was happening in the real world. I have to tell you, I remember the first cat I found. And it was a four or five month old kitten. And I was absolutely sure that when I found that cat, that the owner was gonna be looking all over to try to find her. And unfortunately, at least to me at the time, the owner never came forward. Fortunately for the cat and for me, we developed a relationship and I ended up taking her home. And and she lived with me for about 15 years after that. So I think that the recognition of actually what's really happening began with my exposure to the real world of working in an animal shelter to see not only the types of trouble, but also the numbers. And certainly, if you back up, 30 or 40 years, the numbers of homeless cats and kittens that are looking for a place to go is just monumentally bigger than anyone ever thinks about it. And I think the sheer numbers were certainly impacting on the way I I saw cats during the early part of my career and Clearly, trying to do the combination of I got to care for these animals that are coming to us that need a that need help that need medical care or need a second chance at a new home. With uh, how do you address the? problem in a long-term way clearly just was underscored by the experiences I had. I'm also going to add one other thing that had a real impact on my life, and it has to do with the first time that, Stacy, when you and I worked together, I think we had known each other, but one of the things that was happening in a lot of communities in response to community cats or concerns about rabies and, quote, feral cats was that a lot of cities and towns were starting to say, all right, you can't have feral cats. You can't feed feral cats. Essentially, feral cats are out there and they're nothing but a reservoir for rabies and we need to get rid of them and we need to capture them and get them off the streets. That was kind of a lot of cities and towns were going in that direction. And I remember getting a call from a very smart guy at the Department of Public Health saying, hey, Luke. Can we perhaps have a conversation with the right people about how to help people do the right thing and not punish people for helping homeless animals? And it was about that time that I talked with you and said, hi, Stacy, you work with a lot of community cats and your organization is getting really well established. And I'm wondering if if you and I could collaborate on creating a set of guidelines for people in terms of how they can responsibly handle situations where there were free roaming community cats in their backyard. And what was great was I felt like you and I didn't really know each other and we worked in different kinds of organizations, but I think we came up with a real great sort of guide for people to help people do the right thing and not just if you will curse the problem but indeed find ways of helping people be humane and I will always hold you in extremely high respect and regard for the work that you did in talking with me and with others and connected with the Department of Public Health because I think that that state agency was impacted by our efforts to do the right thing and so this is my kind of tip of the hat to you in helping me also understand that there are a lot of people out there that can about cats that sometimes have a different perspective, but that doesn't mean it's the wrong perspective. It just might be different, and we can find common ground. And you taught me a lot, so I have to say thank you, Stacy, for helping to teach me.
0: Wow, Luke, you got me blushing over here. <laughs> so thank you for all the compliments. <laughs> sure, I thought that was also a great time, and I thought it was a great step. In, and I think some of the things that uh, we've had as past shows, we've talked about the Massachusetts Animal Fund and their voucher program. And it's wonderful to have a state program supporting free bay neuter for feral cats. And I think that much of the work that we did back in those early days, opening up those doors for conversation and understanding led to the successes that we have for feral cats in Massachusetts at this point in time. We do like to talk about the numbers a lot, and I wanted to get a sense of what your interest was in being a founding board member for the National Council on Pet Population Study and Policy.
1: Well, yeah, the numbers. I'm going to say that that, a lot of that interest in numbers began with a fundamental question that I had about 25 years ago, which is, why do people get their animals spayed or neutered? Or why don't they? And what are the motivating factors? Is cost a factor? And I remember because we were at the time having discussions with the veterinary community in Massachusetts about a program to help subsidize the cost of spaying and neutering. And so I wanted some answers about what you know. Let's let's learn from people why it is that they do or don't get their animals sterilized. So we actually found um, some people who would do some independent market research for us, and that was the question. And in fact what was interesting and perhaps revealing, and certainly I learned a lot from that, was that it was very clear that the things that motivated people about their dogs was very different than the way people were motivated to do things for their cats. It was, it was just night and day. And we've often said, cats are not dogs with retractile claws, they're a very different animal, and the relationship that people have with their cats is very different. One of the issues that came out of that beginning research was an understanding that, for example, people do, in general, have a lower level of care and responsibility towards their cats as they do towards their dogs. That's a generalization of the whole population. Of course, those of us who are in the category of rabid cat people, and I'm, I'm in that category, I think you are too, we're a little different. But the general population actually doesn't take care of their cats nearly as well as their dogs. And when we ask the question about Is money a factor? What we found out is that for people who had cats, money was a real factor in whether they sterilized their animal. And it didn't even matter if they were people that were wealthy or people that were poor, financial things were a factor. With dogs, money was a factor only for those people who were low income. There were other issues that impacted on people that were middle income or wealthy. So the issue of understanding. The whys behind some of the behaviors and consequences that we were seeing, all of a sudden was of great interest to me. And we started to do some research in Massachusetts and started to meet some other people around the country who were asking the same kind of questions and really looking at it in a more, let's collect good data, objective data, not just look at what's coming into an animal shelter, but let's find out what's happening outside of our four walls. And so a group of us started this group called the national council on pet population we involved not only shelter people but veterinarians and epidemiologists public health people animal control officers veterinarians from a lot of different communities as well as the dog fancy community and the cat fancy community so the interest was certainly began with trying to understand what was happening in our state and then recognizing that other people had the same kinds of questions
0: I find that the work that that group has done was very interesting. Are they still operating or have they not done much recently?
1: The group is still operating, it is primarily a research sharing organization rather than a research-conducting organization. So you can still find the National Council online, and they are collecting a variety of different kinds of population research that's going on throughout the country. And so it's a valuable resource in terms of information. At the time that it was started and my involvement with it, we were conducting actual research projects across the country, expanding, if you will, the kind of information we had on Massachusetts on a national Level. And clearly, that's a hard thing to do because cats in Hawaii and cats in the north have very different kinds of challenges, and all communities are a little different. So it's always interesting to kind of draw some conclusions based on national data or state data and see how they apply locally. What's good, and what I thought was so great about the National Council, as well as the Massachusetts Animal Coalition, is that all of the people dealing with animals in a variety of different kinds of ways gathered together identifying the common goal which is to have a better understanding of what's going on with our dogs and cats in our communities and finding good ways and effective ways of helping them out so coalition behavior to me has been so important to the efforts that we've made and the successes really the results are what really count and i think it's largely coalitions that help bridge knowledge and bridge efforts so that we can work on things together.
0: Are you new to the Community Cats Podcast? Don't know what to listen to first? Feel free to check out the Listening Module tab, where we have grouped shows together by topic so you can listen to a bunch of shows around the same topic. Just click on the Listening Module tab at www.communitycatspodcast.com and enjoy learning about Community Cats. (coughs) The Community Cats Podcast is now getting over 3,000 downloads a month. The word is spreading, and we have a fast growing listener support base. Would your business want to be a sponsor of the show and help us to continue our programs? To find out more details, please go to www.communitycatspodcast.com slash sponsor. One thing, and tell me if I'm misphrasing this, but I would say around in 2008, The MSPCA may have done a bit of a pivot and began offering really low-cost spay-neuter options for free-roaming cats, as well as for some folks who might not, you know, from low-income folks, too. And I wanted to just ask you, was that an intentional happening, or was it more like a pilot program? I know you had some specific communities. You were targeted, Dorchester, Lawrence, and Haverhill up in the North Shore area. But I wanted to ask if that was an intentional desire at that point in time or sort of let's try it, let's see if it works, and then we can continue on from there.
1: First, I think we all know that it's easy to look at a problem and think we have the solution. And when it doesn't fix things, keep on doing the solution that we've been doing a long time. I mean, it's that whole thing about if what you're doing now isn't working, do something else. I think what led to quite a change in the way we think about how to help community cats was the discussion around using what I'll call a public health model. In public health, if you're studying measles in children, for example, one of the things that public health departments do is essentially evaluate where's the disease popping up? In what communities and neighborhoods does the problem exist? And then designing outreach strategies to address it where it's happening. It's not just spay-neuter clinics in the case of cats or measles vaccination clinics in various places because, hi, we'll, we'll do the clinics, all of you who get measles come to the clinic, it became really clear that public health people were smart and learned that if they don't do outreach to the places where the disease problem is happening, they don't find effective results. It was sort of the understanding of that model at about that time frame you were talking about that led us to think about, okay, if it isn't a disease, but if we think about homelessness, or unwanted kittens as being sort of like a disease and where is it happening And the tracking, literally, by neighborhood and zip code of where the animals that are coming to us, where their sources are, let's figure out where it's happening. And if so, and we are able to identify communities, then let's design outreach that reaches that community. In other words, all of the spay-neuter programs in the world in uh, Natick or Framingham, that doesn't necessarily help animals that are in trouble in Dorchester or Lawrence or Brockton. Let's look at where the problems are. So I think the pivot... As, as you worded it, really was recognizing we've got to be more creative and thoughtful about where we put our efforts to get people involved in sterilization, uh, in better care of cats. And so it became an evaluation by neighborhood, literally about where the, quote, disease of homelessness was occurring. And it was a great learning experience. And I think Looking at the effectiveness, of course, of some of those efforts, we're tracking that, looking at how has this changed homelessness, if you will. And there's been a huge, huge change in the last five, seven, 10 years. And we feel like we're moving in a very, very good direction.
0: So when you say a huge change estimated, what's the change been for your shelters?
1: I'm going to start by saying we have fewer kittens that are coming to us that are homeless. We have fewer adult cats coming to us that are homeless. I think we have better community relations with other animal groups and other animal interests so that animals that get into trouble, there's a lot more communication and moving them around. We are, I guess the one of the key numbers that I would put out to you now is we completed our data for 2016 at the MSPCA, and we're placing 90% of our cats. In fact, the ones that don't get placed, some of them are literally... transferred elsewhere. And some of them end up not being placed or being euthanized. But it's never because we don't have enough room or we have too many cats. Um, Euthanasia happens at the MSPCA almost exclusively because the animal is suffering terribly physically, medically, or is behaviorally really uh, perhaps a danger in the case of dogs. So our adoption rates are almost everything we could possibly want them to be. And I guess the the statement of our watching the charts on euthanasia numbers over the last 10 years have been so rewarding to see. And what that means, too, is that since we still have space in our adoption centers, that if someone brings us a cat that needs medical care or needs dental work before, work can go up for adoption. We have the space and the time and the resources in order to help that animal. And it's been great. I mean, I feel like one of our greatest focuses on cats these days has been on dental work. And it's like, wow. What an incredible statement of helping cats that we're no longer focusing on, can we somehow keep them someplace to give them a chance, that we're really investing in getting them really healthy. What's been fun, too, in the last few years is we started a program on placing, how could we help the most the traditionally most difficult animals to place, which are old cats. So we define old as classic, by the way, we don't use the word old. It's the word classic cats, nine years and older. And so we've started some really specific programs to promote the adoption of a classic cats. We, in fact, had our first program was we named it after classic movies. Our first one was called Catsablanca. And then we did The Sound of meowsic. And the cat father was last year's promotion. And what's been cool is to find so many homes for cats that we would never dream that we could place. We've placed a couple in the 18, 19-year-old range in the last couple of years. And those are traditionally cats when they they come into animal shelters that no one ever takes a look at. So I think the combination of reducing the numbers, reducing the supply, and helping the animals that are homeless be healthy and really fit better into people's houses without them having to spend $500 on dental work has really made a difference in the well-being of cats and in the numbers that are homeless.
0: So if we took you, Luke, and we moved you, say, to a humane society that still had a live release rate or a save rate or adoption rate of 30 to 40 percent you went in there. what what would be your first action?
1: Well, I think first, I'm a great believer in listening to your community. So my first step would be to look at what's happening in the new shelter that I'm working in and also to gather people, around the community, and that's, again, uh, other adoption centers and shelters of all kinds, animal control officers of the veterinary community, and I would gather people together and try to get a good understanding of what's happening where and what resources we have as a community, not just as my one organization, but what resources do we have as a community to help us address the problems that we all share. No one organization. No one Person or entity or profession can really make that big of a difference. And I think that building a community approach, it's why I like, I I love the language of talking about them as community cats, because it it is a community issue that we all can help on. It is in everyone's best interest that cats are well cared for. Even those people who don't, for some reason, are crazy enough not to like cats, it's still in their best interest that cats are well cared for because it makes for a humane community. It makes for cats and other animals getting great care. So again, to me, I would be gathering resources to figure out how we could work together to help address the problems that we all see.
0: If folks are interested in finding out more about the MSPCA and these programs, how would they do that?
1: Well, of course, there's our website, www.mspca.org, um, certainly one quick place to find. I always believe that it's always good to talk with people, and we have adoption centers and hospitals scattered around the state, so a visit is always a good thing, and there are a lot of us who enjoy talking with individuals as well as groups. So it's as simple as finding on the website, how do I reach, how do I talk to somebody, a real human being, because we like real human beings. (laughs) So there's lots of different ways to find us website and visiting is probably the, the two things that come to mind quickly.
0: And Luke, is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners today?
1: I guess if I were going to sum that up, I'd say I think everybody needs to fall in love from time to time. I think it is a wonderful thing to fall in love with a cat from time to time. Some of us need to limit the numbers of cats we fall in love with or (laughs) at least bring into our houses. But I really think it's such an incredible experience to share one's household with another species. And cats are absolutely fantastic. The other thing I would share is I've always felt that people who work to make it better for cats should unfortunately find a lost cat at some point in time and figure out how to help that cat. Where do I go? How do I, I care about this cat. It isn't just to call my animal control officer or my local adoption center. I think it's great for those of us who work in animal shelters or animal control to personally find a cat from time to time, care about it and try to find the owner or find a new home because it's a very different thing that on a personal one-to-one basis to find that cat, it's just, that's how people feel about cats in their neighborhoods and in their communities. So fall in love with a cat, find a cat and try to help it is, uh, I I think are two great things to uh, recommend to people.
0: And I have one last follow-up question. What do you think life will be like for community cats five to 10 years from now?
1: Ooh, I think that it will be, I'm dreaming that in enlightened communities that there are people who are watching and helping them when they need help that indeed that people are cognizant of what's in their backyards that at times when they're in trouble that they know either how to help or who to call to get help I see there being a healthier population of cats both inside and outside I see us having less disease issues that impact on cats well-being And health. And I would really like to be sure that all animals are vaccinated for rabies so that the public health folks don't get too worried about transmission of disease to people. So, that and having the number of kittens under control uh, are the dreams and beliefs I had for five years down the road.
0: Luke, I want to thank you so much for agreeing to be a guest on the show. And I hope we'll have you on in the future. And I want to share with everybody a happy Earth Day today.
1: Ah, yes. Great day. Good day for cats.
0: Great day for cats.
1: Thank you, Stacey. Thanks
0: for all the great testimonials. Keep sending them in and submitting reviews on iTunes. I just thought I would share one testimonial from Wingchair, a visit to a whole new world. Although I thought I knew something about community cats, TNR, and other forms of outreach to help homeless cats and kittens, every single podcast I've listened to has taught me vast amounts of new material and provided many terrific ideas. It's a wonderful thing you're doing here, so please keep it going. Keep on sending in those testimonials, and thanks to WingShare for that great testimonial. Also, I'd appreciate it if you'd go to iTunes and post a five-star review there. That would be great help. Thanks so much in spreading the word about the Community Cats Podcast. (coughs)